0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The grid is everywhere, sending power to the light switch on the wall and water to the faucet in the kitchen. But is it essential? Must we depend on it and the corporate and government infrastructure behind it? My guest on the program today is Nick Rosen. He's traveled the United States, spending time with all kinds of individuals and families, striving to live their lives free from dependence on municipal power and amenities and free from dependence on government and its far-reaching tentacles. His book is Off the Grid, Inside the Movement for More Space, Less Government, and True Independence in Modern America. He profiles millionaires and foreclosure victims, survivalists and environmentalists, retirees and marijuana growers, and ordinary families all chasing their off-grid dreams. I'm curious about you as well. What about you? Have you ever thought about living off the grid? Perhaps you're currently doing so. Why do you do it? Is it for political, economic, environmental, or other reasons? And how do you do it? I'd love to hear from you right now three ways to reach us upraxis at gmail.com is the email upraxis at gmail.com you can call us toll free anywhere you're listening 1-800-826-1495 one 826 1495 or you can join us on twitter we're at utah public radio if you'd like to join our guest uh, on twitter it's at nick rosen two. nick rosen a pleasure to welcome you to access utah
1: hi there thanks for inviting me
0: uh you're in england i believe
1: I am at the moment, yeah.
0: Well, where about?
1: I'm uh, at my own off-grid place in uh, down by the coast. It's an old railway coach that uh, has got a phone, but it doesn't have water or sewage connection. Uh, we've got you know just a, a hole in the garden, and um, yeah, this is where I come to get away from it.
0: All right, so you're you're living off-grid right now.
1: But I'm a part-timer.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. I, I yeah. love
1: to to go backwards and forwards between the city and my off-grid life.
0: Yeah, and you do, uh, you make documentaries, I believe, and uh, other things, uh, along, I along with editing the website offgrid.net, by the way, it's off-grid.net, and you say your hobbies include cooking, diving, and trespassing. Uh, tell me okay. about trespassing. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, you've got to be careful where you trespass, but it just means you know there are some beautiful places out there which are not strictly open to the public. But as long as it isn't going to harm anybody or annoy anybody, I just like to explore where I'm not supposed to go.
2: Hmm.
1: I suppose uh, that's also um, the way I approach journalism.
0: I, I see. Yeah. Uh, how did you get into this this, this subculture? What uh, what what introduced you to to this and, how I got and made into you do it?
1: To... Was that I been living with a very wealthy woman, and she had a a wonderful house in a kind of millionaire's village in Spain, and when we split up, I found I really missed that part of Spain and the beauty of that northwest coast of Mallorca, and it was a kind of uh, showbiz playground. Jack Nicholson and Michael Douglas spent a lot of time there, and all sorts of international stars and celebrities. Um, And the reason they went there is because it was just so beautiful. It was one of the most wonderful spots in the world. And I missed it, and I wanted to go back there, uh, but of course I couldn't afford a house there. Uh, But I was looking around and driving up um, private roads and found an old shepherd's hut for $7,000. So I bought that, and I was terribly pleased with myself. It came with half an acre of land, and it had a view of the Mediterranean. And I thought for $7,000, I've got a millionaire's view and I'm right by this millionaire's village that I wanted to remain part of. And I realized actually it was quite comfortable. That technology was all just starting from cell phones to solar panels, was all just coming in. And I realized that everybody could do this and you didn't have to wait till you were old and retired to enjoy your own little piece of heaven. So for me, it was... uh, about just extending my freedom and not being, not being held down by having no money.
0: Uh, maybe we should. Before we proceed, we should uh, take care of some definitions. Uh, you've talked to many people about this concept of living off grid. And I think sometimes, you know, it can mean different things, can't it? Essentially, it sure. means off of the municipal power and, and you're not hooked up to the, you know, to the water and sewer system. You're doing that on your, on your own. But it can mean anything up to, uh, you know, erasing your identity uh, off the Internet and social media as well.
1: Absolutely. Completely disconnecting yourself from the, all forms of society. So I was visiting a, a group in, in New Mexico, for example, um, not far from Taos. And they've chosen to cycle everywhere. They don't want to use the car or the supermarket or the garage or the gas station. Uh, so they cycle everywhere. They grow a bit of food. They work for cash. They maybe have one cell phone between them just for emergencies. And, uh, you know, they cycle into town to buy food and sell food and do odd jobs. Uh, That was probably about 15 miles each way, Um, so they took it really seriously, and and these are not people who were forced to do it. Uh, One of them was um, a stockbroker in his previous life. Another had left a job as vice president of Urban Outfitters, and uh, she was kind of the leader, leading member of the group, the sort of social organizer. And she said to me, "The thing about urban outfitters was they knew how to take more than you can give." Uh, so she wasn't fired. She walked out and chose this life for herself.
0: You've talked to a lot of people. You traveled America, and you—you you, I think you did a similar thing in in the UK. What what are the main reasons why people go off the grid? There's a range of reasons, I believe.
1: Yeah, there's the obvious ones like the environment. A lot of people do it because they want to live the environmental life instead of just talking about it. And they know that just slightly reducing their consumption is a bit hypocritical. That's what most of us do, but they want to go further. They want to go as far as they can. And then there are people who've got no choice. They're doing it because that's the only option open to them. They're homeless or their home has been foreclosed. And I met a lot of people in, you know, in 2010, 2011, who were driving around, having lost their home, looking for a place, finding a place where they could get a few acres, so they could call their own and start a new life. And they were doing it. You know, I met a woman who had been a nurse, but uh, she um, couldn't make the payments on her home in, in New York State. So she took her family down to uh, Texas. and um, And she's still there. And, you know, she's growing food and part of a community down there. Very important to be, have a community. I don't think this idea of just being a hermit in the woods, this kind of survivalist idea, doesn't really work unless you go with a group of survivalists. They're another very important group, those who believe that society is breaking down in America or might break down, or that they can't depend on the government to, to look after us anymore in the event of a collapse. Uh, so those are probably the main categories.
0: This seems to be a big strain in, in your book, and I, I wonder, um, well, first of all, let's establish that, and I'll ask you if that still you think is the case. But at the time you were going around America, of course, there was the, the just sort of at the bottom of the Great Recession and, uh, and foreclosures, as you mentioned, and uh, this, this growing sense among at least some people that I can't depend on the government anymore. I've, I've, I've got to make my own way.
1: Yeah, and I don't think that's gone away. I think that collapse in trust in the system, um, you know, I think that the, the most, the worst of the doomsayers have been proven wrong. Uh, the system hasn't collapsed yet, but the lack of trust hasn't gone away. The fact that the bankers mainly walked free, the fact that income inequality is continuing to widen the fact that people, the average guy's standard of living is continuing to fall in terms of their real wages and what they can actually earn. So that lack of trust in the system, that lack of belief is still there. And that's why I think the off-grid population is growing. Plus, of course, it's technologically possible. The technology is constantly improving. The solar panels are getting more efficient. The... the uh, Appliances that you need consume less and less energy. Uh, so everything's moving in that direction and making it easier. But, yeah, the, the, the lack of trust and, and the feeling that that you can do just as well outside of mainstream society is, uh, is still very much a factor in the people who contact me. And, and that's the reasons that people are giving me when they contact me via my website. Um, that's the main reason. A kind of weariness with consumerist society. mm
0: Uh, Tell me a little bit more about the technology. Um, If I put myself in this situation, you know, say I've decided, yeah, it'd be nice to go off-grid, but there's a certain inertia, right, and maybe laziness and, you know, (laughs) I can imagine for myself it'd have to be pretty easy for me to go off-grid if I were actually going to do it. And if you're going to have a lot of people adopt this, it it probably has to be some pretty good technology. You say the technology is increasing, it's increasingly easier to go off-grid?
1: It is, but it's still not. Uh, it's not like coming home and flipping on the light. And it never will be. I mean, you, you know, you're taking responsibility for your own power plant and your own sewage system. Uh, there are kind of quite a lot of extra things to think about. Uh, there's work to be done, and if it breaks down, you don't just call the repairman. You're probably going to have to fix it yourself because the repairman's maybe 50 miles away, if there is one. And uh, you know, there's. However, there is normally a network, a support network, because although uh, you might be just living as one family, you'll probably be living near another family or off-grid. That tends to be the way it works. The sort of communities that allow and welcome off-grid homes uh, have quite a few of them. So at least there's always somebody to go to for advice. So, well, the technology. So... Solar panels have become a lot cheaper, and batteries have become a, a, a lot better at storing the power, and maintaining batteries is, is an art. You have to be very careful how not to let them drain completely, and uh, not to just leave them in a completely drained state, or else you'll be buying a new battery. There are all sorts of little useful tips I could give you. Uh, with water gathering, you know, if you're living in a rainy part of the country, then that's pretty easy. You just have to build a... Huge water receptacle, and you'll have enough for the, for the whole year. Uh, in my place in Spain, that I told you about, I've got a, a rainwater tank as big as a house, and it, it operates two flushing toilets um, because it's on a hillside, that works very well, and a hot water shower, which is powered by uh, butane bottles. Um, uh, so, uh, I can go on to give you a kind of picture of an, in, you know, an entire off grid household, but maybe you're getting the idea that mm-hmm. you can patch together solutions depending on where you live and what works for you. If you're living in the middle of a wood, then you're probably more likely to use, to cut down some trees and use that for your energy. If you're living in a very sunny place, then you're going to use solar and solar hot water. Uh, so you kind of adapt yourself to the local surroundings.
0: And before I uh, got into reading your book and uh, thinking about this in depth, and, and I know a lot of our listeners have, are ahead of me on this and have thought about this. And, and you're maybe off-grid. By the way, I'd love to hear from you uh, what your experience has been at 1-800-826-1495 or gmail at gmail.com. And you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. I'm talking with Nick Rosen. His book is Off the Grid. Um, so you could you could think through, you know, how do I get electricity, solar panels, and the like – but, if you're going to disconnect from the the city's sewer system and the and the like, you maybe have to think of a composting toilet and and those sorts of things and you say in the book this is this is a barrier that uh, uh that stops some people they're they're okay on the on the solar power and that kind of thing but but on the other <laughs> the other side if I put it that way is is what stops some people
1: sure i mean some people are too squeamish, mm-hmm. and for some people it's just uh the kind of opposite of what they think of as human progress. I remember I, w- I met one very senior politician, and she said, you know, I grew up in a house with an outside toilet. I never want to go back to that. So, you know, different, it's not right for everybody. But I think there is a huge pent-up demand to live this way. I'm not saying it for everybody, but maybe 5 or 10% of the population would like to try it at least part of the time. And there are a lot of rules and regulations stopping them. So in Colorado, you can't collect rainwater, for example. And in many parts of the country, you cannot just dig a a cesspit for your septic tank. You have to have a huge, expensive, um, pre-made system that, that, that desiccates and treats the sewage, you know, rather than it just seeping into the ground, which used to be the case. And that's understandable in some ways, because the population increase means that if everybody did that, it could cause problems in the water table. Especially if people did it in an irresponsible way. But you know, going back a hundred years of course, that's what everybody did. And you know, very occasionally there might go, something might go wrong, but not often. So yeah, the answer is there's plenty of old technologies and new technologies to allow you to live off grid in comfort and convenient way. And uh it shouldn't be looked on as going, you know, some sort of backward step. For me it's very much where we are all going as a society my latest filmmaking by the way it's nothing to do with off-grid it's about chinese billionaires and i've been spending time in china learning about the people who are going to eat our lunch and if there's one reason why we're going to need to know about off-grid technologies it's because despite the fracking and the gas reserves that america has got um you know our financial and, and energy leadership is on the move. It's going East. And in 20 years time, we won't be the world's biggest economy anymore.
0: We're going to take a break when we come back. More with Nick Rosen. His book is "Off the Grid: Inside the Movement for More Space, Less Government, and True Independence in Modern America." And uh, Nick Rosen is a part timer. He lives off the grid. In fact, he's he's speaking to us right now in his is off the grid uh, facility. Uh, he goes back and forth. He's a documentary filmmakers. You heard just just there among uh, other things that he does. Um, and we're going to talk ab- about uh, more reasons to go off grid. Why he thinks the subculture is growing. Uh, and obstacles. There are institutional obstacles. One of those is zoning. And there are many, many uh, instances of uh, people wanting to do this, but uh, going up against city and uh, county bureaucracy. Uh, we'll talk about uh, some, in, some of the environmental movement are, are against this. We'll talk about that. Uh, somewhat surprising finding. More with Nick Rosen following this break. <music> The Be Well Moment is made possible
2: by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at USU.edu HR. Are you at risk for diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic diseases? And how do you know? During an annual exam, your doctor can take a careful look at your numbers, including your cholesterol and triglyceride levels, your blood pressure, and more. Knowing your numbers is an important part of keeping your heart healthy, and it can save your life. It can help you and your doctor know your risks and mark the progress you're making toward a healthier you. Healthy numbers mean a healthy heart. If you follow a healthy lifestyle, eat a balanced diet, get regular exercise, and avoid smoking, you can even turn bad numbers around. Post the goals you need to reach on your refrigerator as a reminder to love your heart. Small changes can make a big difference. This is Dana Barrett, Wellness Coordinator for Utah State University. Be well, Utah.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. i Tom Williams. Most of us are on the grid. That's the way it's been set up. You uh, live in a house that's uh, connected uh, to the municipal power supply. Your uh, sewage goes out through pipes to the municipal sewage collection. We're very much connected. Um, some people, a growing number of people, says Nick Rosen, are choosing to go off the grid. Many reasons. Could be environmental. Could be a lack of faith in the government could be survivalism. Some people do it uh, for religious reasons, Um, and some people go uh, all the way. They want to erase their identity on the uh, Internet and social media and uh, and just not be a part of society in that way. There's a full range, including part-time off-the-gridders, and that's what Nick Rosen is. He's speaking to us right now off-the-grid. Um, of course, except for, set for telephone, and uh, I think he's on the internet as well. By the way, he's uh, at Nick Rosen too if you want to reach him on Twitter. We'd love to hear your experience. Does this seem like a good idea to you? Should more people do this? Have you done this? And how are you doing it? Why? The number is 1 800 826 1495. 1 800 826 1495. You can reach us by email, upraccess at gmail.com, upraxess at gmail.com. And if you'd like to tweet us, we're at Utah Public Radio. Um, Nick Rosen, as I think about this with regard to Utah, and we talked uh, last week a little bit about this, and you asked me, is is, is there anything uh, like this, a movement in Utah? And I'm, I'm not yeah. entirely sure, but I, I know there has been a strain of survivalists in Utah. Um, I'm not sure if that continues as strong. Also, I pulled up the Deseret News, and uh, this from this is from 2010, and I haven't been able to see how they're doing now, but there was a community in central Utah, in San Pete County, near Spring City. Uh, people wanted uh, to uh, uh, construct this whole village off-grid. It was called uh, Safe Haven Village. So if anybody knows about Safe Haven Village, or maybe you live there uh, Contact us. Uh, we'd love to hear how you're doing. Uh, anyway, uh, there are t- definite obstacles. Uh, Nick Rose and you write about this in the book. In fact, the, the, our whole system is set up uh, that a house needs to be a certain way, needs to be connected to the grid, and and a lot of times, reading in the book, that when people try to go off grid, uh, you butt up against this this uh, stereotype, this expectation, and and these laws.
1: Yeah. And very strange. And of course, it's the same everywhere that people would really like to live. Of course, if you go somewhere horrible, you know, a desert or, you know, some completely isolated mountainous area, then of course, people don't mind how you live, and um, which is why so many off-grid homes are built uh, in that area on, on the mesa outside Taos. It's pretty inhospitable. Um, and it's a. Same true in the UK. In fact, it's much more difficult in the UK. There's almost no way that you can go in the UK to uh, build yourself an off grid home. And it's funny, isn't it? You would have thought that if you bought yourself a decent sized amount of land and you wanted to just live on that land and grow some food and do some good for the environment, that somehow you should be allowed to. But it just ain't so. And as you said earlier, it's the zoning requirements that often get in people's way. And it's understandable, of course, you don't want property developers buying fields and turning them into housing tracts. Nobody wants that. But unfortunately, the same laws that prevent that also prevent people from living a good life, a decent, honest, environmental life on their own land. And you would have thought the lawyers could get together somehow and come up with a definition that permitted people who were living decently and ecologically and what you might call a low-impact life or a net-zero carbon life, that people like that should be encouraged and there should be some way of distinguishing legally between them and, um, uh, and property developers, you know, real estate developers. So I'm forever looking to campaign on that subject and looking for people to campaign with but the trouble is that the people who are doing this tend to be rather isolated and and uh, you know, not part of the mainstream, and so, as a result, they're not really in a position to campaign very hard, because although it's a large minority, if you add them up, they're spread out all over America, and uh, nobody's speaking up for them. As you mentioned, the environmental movement has very little time for off-grid. It's seen as too weird. The environmental movement, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, that kind of thing, are pretty mainstream these days. and. They're quite embarrassed to be associated with the deep green, what they see as hippies, even though there's plenty of millionaires with off-grid homes. Um, So the the environmental movement has been of very little help or support uh, for the off-grid movement.
0: Uh, Tell me a little bit more about that, Uh, the environmental movement. And there is a stigma, isn't there? In a lot of people's minds, oh, these are just hippies out there and uh you know we don't want to we don't want to go there because we don't want the the stigma it seems on the face of it that this would be good for the environment though
1: well i don't know if you I, if you've noticed but i've noticed the way that greenpeace has just become part of the establishment you know they're more interested in the 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 super rich people that they get their uh, donations from and the politicians that they are constantly said to be lobbying than they are in the actual environmentalists on the ground living a green life Greenpeace the, only the other day I mean a couple of months ago uh, was found to have lost 30 million dollars on the international currency markets because instead of spending you know the donations that we're all giving them uh, every year on ac- actually campaigning it's actually spending that money on playing the stock exchange and So I think that Greenpeace in particular, but many other groups as well, have lost their way and have become part of the establishment that they're supposed to be opposing. And you see every so often that a big energy company has got some sort of PR initiative to open a a green home or something, or a low, low energy home, and they do it in coalition with one of the environmental charities. Uh, so, I think that those those environmental groups have been pretty well corrupted, and they don 't think much of the off grid movement either. They say things like, "Oh, the most environmental place to live is in a city because that way you you know you can use the public transport you don 't need your own car, um, you can walk places and cycle places, but that is to ignore the vast amount of sunk energy costs that have already gone into that city. The vast continuing energy costs that go into maintaining the transport system, the sewage system, the vast amounts of cars and lorries that pour into that city every morning, bringing food and workers, and pour out again in the evening. So, there is a debate of sorts going on within the environmental movement uh, as to whether cities are the greenest place to live. Um, but uh, I don't think it's a very useful debate. I mean, uh, really what we're talking about is individual choice. And for a lot of people living in uh, substandard rented accommodation or you know, an unpleasant home that they actually own but don't like very much, they would love to liberate themselves to go and live somewhere where they had a bit of space and a bit of land they could call their own and a community of other like-minded people. But it's, it's hard to find.
0: In fact, you, I uh, believe in the book, the, the later chapters, you argue for, um, you know, this This is a way we can get people out into some open space, just as you just said, uh, maybe help rural areas. If you reduce housing Absolutely. costs You've in this got, manner, yeah. get people out yeah. there. But,
1: because there are problems in rural areas, you know, with with the, the um, mechanization of agriculture that took place since the Second World War you've got vast tracts of, of the countryside which are just places that people drive through that have been completely depopulated and where there are very few jobs for those those of us left there because um... you know because of uh, the industrialization of agriculture um, and then when you come in with a perfectly good plan to to bring in labor-intensive craft skills you find you're up against opposition from local householders who feel that you know you might be the wrong sort of person might reduce the value of their home and from local local regulations and zoning laws. So that's what people are up against and you know, and as I said it's it's particularly true in the places people would most like to live, the lusher parts of California for example, or you know, North Carolina or uh, Kentucky. There are very few counties the, uh, actively welcoming off-grid uh, communities to move in. And uh, if anybody knows of, of people who are having this kind of a struggle right now, um, off, the off-grid website is always there to support them and try and rally support, you know, other locals to support them and to just be uh, an information exchange uh, for what's going on and where you can go if you do want to try and go off-grid. And we've also got a a service called Land Buddy, which is a free service where you can put on, you know, post details about yourself and where you want to live, and it's kind of browsable Google map where you can maybe find other people who want to live where you want to live, or post yourself so that other people can find you. So that's at landbuddy.com
0: landbuddy.com and then offgrid.net off-off-grid oh, hyphen grid.net uh, 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 grid uh, um, uh, nick rosen is my guest he's written a book off the grid inside the movement for more space less government and true independence in modern america he uh, spent some time crisscrossing america talking to people who are off the grid and asking them why uh, he uh, Give some. His other book uh, tells you a little more how on this. Uh, he's a documentary yeah. filmmaker and does other things. Very interestingly, you mentioned, Nick Rosen, your latest documentary is on Chinese billionaires. Yes. Uh, why did you choose and, that? Uh, oh, hello? Uh, why did you choose that as a subject?
1: It's kind of the flip side. It's almost the other side of the story. I mean, you know, as, as uh, our, uh, us Western industrialized nations... Um, are becoming more advanced and more concerned about the environment. We're becoming less ardent consumers just at the time when China is going crazy for brands and consumption. And, um, you know, there's a million, uh, sorry, there's 1.4 billion Chinese who are putting up the price of raw materials and energy and who are going to take away the easy economic leadership that america has enjoyed for 50 years and i think as the as that story plays itself out the off-grid option is going to become more and more attractive and the people who living off the grid at the moment who who are seen as maybe oddballs are going to become more and more useful to society as 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 role models for a different way of living where you can be very happy with much less money You know, living in smaller homes, consuming less energy or almost no energy uh, means that you have to earn less, and, you know, as real incomes continue to decline and um, jobs are moved increasingly offshore, that might be a very valuable lesson for America in the decades to come.
0: The early part of your book is uh, is involved in uh, setting up how. In fact, one of the chapters called "How the Grid Was Won," uh, how we yeah. got this mindset, collective mindset that a house is a certain way and it's connected to the grid. One of your points is we could have much less expensive houses if they're off grid. This could, uh, you know, solve problems of people having their houses foreclosed on, and and as you just said, uh, cheaper living would have to wouldn't have to earn as much. But but how do you how do you tilt against that windmill, though? It's a, this, it's a very powerful, institutionalized, collective idea that the uh, housing is, is, is a certain way.
1: It is, and, um, you know, it's, it's hard to remind people of how things were 100 years ago. Um, most people, quite understandably, are more interested in the problems they've got today. Uh, but it is in- interesting and instructive to remember what was happening at, at the beginning of the national grid in america in the in the nineteen twenties and the nineteen tens uh, you know edison who invented electricity pretty well and who pioneered the um, commercial exploitation of electricity his first customers were rich homes and offices in wall street and he used to charge by the number of light bulbs they had and as a result, it was hugely in his interest to have very efficient light bulbs that consumed as little energy as possible. But he quickly realized he could make a lot more money if he charged pi the unit of electricity and that it would be much better to charge by the unit of electricity and then make the light bulbs as inefficient as possible. And that is pretty well the model that has been sustained until the present day when the energy companies have every motivation to persuade us to use as much energy as possible by having as many inefficient appliances as possible and by organizing ourselves in ways that are not energy saving. So for example, many people are not aware that 30% of energy is lost in between the power station and the end user, the home or the office or the factory. It's just lost in the transmission system. And at the time when the national grid was built, we were told this is more efficient. It's it's the way that modern society needs to organize itself. And it became a paradigm for every sort of producer to centralize production, to make it very big, economies of scale, we're told. But in fact, if we all produce our own energy locally, not only would we keep our power, meaning political power, in our own hands, but we wouldn't be sending this energy you know, around America on big, ugly towers or expensive underground cables. So, you know, it's a big subject and, uh, and we've only got a short amount of time, but it, it is useful to know this information and understand that the things that we take for granted about the way our world is organized, it was organized for the convenience of the producers and not for the convenience of us, the consumers. So, uh, you know, each time that you wonder why your electricity bill is so high, remember that 30% of it is spent on uh, trading energy, you know, energy that's sent around the grid from one business to another.
0: We're talking that with that
1: answer your question? Uh, yes. I don't quite yeah. remember what your question
0: was. <laughs> No, certainly, certainly. That was very valuable information. Uh, Nick Rosen is my guest, and his book is Off the Grid, Inside the Movement for More Space, Less Government, and True Independence in Modern America. We're uh, looking for your story, your question or comment. You're uh, welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Our email, you can join us there as well, Upraccess at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Betty in Washington County has been waiting patiently and joins us, uh, Betty. Welcome to the program.
2: Good morning. I am definitely on grid, but I do live out in the country, and I think sometimes about um, how nice it would be to be able to gather wind for yourself to, to you know generate en- energy for your own self. I have, in listening to you while I was on on hold, I, I so many other things came up. I want to quickly tell you that. Many years ago, when I lived in Kansas City, you could take your uh, used light bulbs, you know, the ones that had burned out, to the Kansas City Power & Light and get new ones free. Interesting. Um, Hmm. That's just a little interesting thing that that certainly hasn't been done for a long, long time. But the main question that I had for you is how you think your movement and the movement of uh, the people that you are in contact with ties in with the separatist movement, the Clive Bundys of the world, uh, the militias, uh, the other people who definitely are living off-grid, the but they also have a, uh, a kind of a violent anti-government um, aspect to them.
0: Okay, thank you, well, Betty, they... for that question.
2: You're welcome. Yeah, there is a big overlap, um,
1: because there are many different motivations for living off-grid, and people come together who live off-grid through practical problems that they need to solve. Um, But this idea of of the militia, it's it's not uh, opposed to the off-grid way of life because, of course, if you are not relying on government, if you don't want to rely on government, then you have to have some way of policing yourself and of defending yourself not from government but from uh, anybody else who might come along and i saw this a a lot when i was um in california visiting off-grid communities and getting to know some of the big time pot growers up in the hills uh, outside ukiah and places like that because um they have a problem which is that each, each harvest time they get gangs who are not from the area coming in to steal their harvest. Uh, things have changed, of course, in the last year or two because we're moving towards legalization of marijuana. Uh, but that was a good example of of why it is that you need to defend yourself. And you know, in the event of a social collapse, the big question is: Do we fight them or do we feed them? Because in the event of of, of uh, the food chain breaking down. There are going to be a lot of people leaving cities and looking for food. And, uh, you know, at that point, it seems obvious to me that if you've got food, you have to open your doors and let people in, or else they're going to force their way in. Mm. They wouldn't have any choice.
0: We are uh, talking with uh, Nick Rosen. His book is Off the Grid, and you can call us. We'd love to get your take on this uh, Off the Grid movement. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, UPRaxis at gmail dot or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Next up is Scott in Eagle Mountain. Welcome to the program, Scott.
3: Hey, good morning. I'm really excited to be able to read your book. I've i not familiar with your work, but uh, on cool. my way to what I do is I going to work today. I heard your show and. Can hardly wait to get the book. I've I've been working for a solar company in Park City, and uh, I'm happy to say that solar panels are going up like crazy, and we've been very busy, and uh, thankfully so because it keeps me in a job. So uh, we've yeah, we've done about 1,500 systems in the last five years.
0: So what what uh, Scott, if I could uh, follow up with you. Um your customers—is it? I guess it must be a range of uh, you know just residential people that want to uh, reduce their power bills to uh, maybe some off the grid people. What is it a range like that?
3: Yeah. Yes. It's uh, we have some that are completely off the grid that want battery backup, and they want to remain totally off grid. Uh, the majority of the people that we install for have uh, what's called net metering. So. The uh, solar panels produced during the day; it goes back into the grid. Whatever they don't use, and then they can take it back from the grid through the meter and, and get paid for producing it. Basically, hmm. so we have a we have both.
0: Uh, Nick, what's your take on this?
3: Well, it's great that uh, you've got so many customers,
1: and of course, every person who puts solar panels on their roof, whether it's their home or their office or their factory, they're increasing America's resilience. They're reducing the dependence upon foreign power, foreign imports, and uh, also on their reducing dependence on the big energy companies. And uh, one of the very biggest banks, I think it was Morgan Stanley or J.P. Morgan, I forget which one, recently put out a report pointing out that each time somebody becomes energy self-sufficient through solar panels or wind turbines, it damages the existing power companies quite a lot, because for every customer they lose, they have to share out the same fixed costs among a smaller group of customers. And uh, the the, uh, financial um, community is beginning to see the utility companies, the electricity companies, as a dying industry because those fixed costs are going to be shared out among fewer and fewer uh, customers uh, as the years go by, uh, which, of course, only accelerates the number of people moving to solar panels. And uh, the Tesla car company has now announced that what it calls a gigafactory for the production of cheap, very high-quality batteries. So everything is pointing towards um, Scott's industry being the one that is going to displace these energy companies that, of course, you know, I see as an enemy
3: uh, of the consumer. I wonder... May I ask one more uh, question? Uh, yes. Yes, I, go ahead. Yeah. One, one of the reason I call this, I want to be totally off of the grid, and I would like to... Uh, actually construct a home out of cargo containers, because uh, we yeah. think that's good for recycling. And my right. my big concern is getting an ugly old cargo container house in a neighborhood uh, and trying to get things to go past the building department and the local laws. Mm. Can you tell me of any way I can uh, research maybe some federal laws that would override local laws and allow me to build wherever I want? How do I go about getting my my, uh, my cargo container home off the grid in a neighborhood where they may not want it.
1: Well, of course, you know, that's true for every, everybody who's got a, a design. That they, you know, I would say my, my first advice would be don't go into an area which has got very house-proud people. Don't go into a conservation zone, you know, or an area full of houses that were built in in the 19th century. Um, But another way, a more positive way to look at it would be if you go online and look at uh, container homes, you can find beautiful examples that look highly engineered and very slick and, you know, look as good as any piece of modern architecture. It's just in the way you put them together. They don't have to look like a sort of higgledy-piggledy-jumble of old crates. They can look like a deliberately and beautifully designed uh, object that deserves to be appreciated in its own right. And there are hundreds of examples uh, all over the web and all over the world.
0: Uh, Nick, uh, Scott may run into zoning laws as well. There there are some areas, uh, I think, prohibit That's right. going off the grid. Yeah,
1: so my immediate advice would be choose a zone where you're going to get away with it. Uh, okay. you know, don't fight all Thank those you, battles sir. yet again. Make it easy for yourself. Appreciate it. But, of course, if you've already got the land and then... Uh, you know, well, then it's very specific, and I'd have to know exactly which bit of land and how uh, how to advise you. But please get in touch. Uh, you can email me, nickrosen at gmail.com, and uh, we can continue this conversation offline. Okay, perfect. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Scott. Appreciate that. Good luck with you, with your project there. Um, so, uh, Nick Rosen, we just have about oh, five minutes left or, or so. Um, in our discussion uh, just uh, about five minutes ago... Um, yeah, uh, the, the question was, uh, it was Betty's question, uh, the, the off-the-grid movement and its ties with and overlap with anti-government uh, movements, and, and we've just had an incident with Cliven Bundy, uh, who uh, faced down the federal government in Nevada. Um, and that i think is sort of the perception along with sort of you know these are all hippies it's it is not a totally favorable perception in the in the eyes of the general public the -the off-the-grid movement um and if you want this to grow uh maybe some pr work needs to be done i don't know
1: well you're absolutely right and um you know uh I would love to hear from, I, I'd love to make a documentary about a successful community, off-grid community, of the sort I recently described. Uh, about 20 minutes ago, I told you about a group in New Mexico who consisted of uh, you know, very successful professionals who'd chosen to make that move. Well, like many off-grid people, they politely declined my invitation to let me make a film about them. Uh, They're off-grid because they want to remain below the radar. They don't want to be famous. Uh, So I'm forever looking for the perfect example, uh, sort of poster children for the off-grid movement, who are peaceful and industrious and law-abiding, and haven't been forced into it, but have chosen to leave successful careers in order to take up an off-grid life so please get in touch and uh, we can discuss making that movie
0: uh certainly so it's nick rosen at gmail.com is one of the ways to to join him uh, his website is off-grid.net and uh, the the latest book is off the grid inside the movement for more Spaceless government and true independence in modern america uh, and i guess it's a sliding scale isn't it you you don't have to totally go off grid in one fell swoop you can get some solar panels on your house you can you can do this in increments
1: Absolutely. I mean, even living in the city, you can take one room off grid and, uh, you know, you could catch rainwater from your roof into a tank. And I'm not suggesting that that would kind of make a difference to your bills or your life. But it would be a way of easing yourself into it.
0: By the way, you Learning, can... you can you know, you, uh, technology. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, I just wanted to point out you can now do that legally in Utah. Up until just a few years ago, you could not collect rainwater. You, you now can in Utah. I'm not sure what the limitation
1: is. Right. Interesting. Yeah, well, so you can have, you know, if you put a solar panel on your roof, and, and also, of course, people do go off-grid. When, you know, if you, go, if you go camping or hiking uh, and you take um, a bit of technology with you, you could see whether you can last a few days in just out in the wild. Uh, it's a really great experience and cut yourself off from your cell phone for a few days uh, and just allow yourself to fall back on your own skills and ingenuity. Um, it's, it's a great way of kind of reconnecting with yourself and with nature and uh, reminding yourself that you don't have to you know, spend your days all wired in and plugged into the system.
0: Uh, I wonder where you think this is going to end up in, you know, say ten, twenty years. What what percentage of the population? You say it is growing. Where, where do you think it's going to end up in the in the somewhat near
1: future? Well, it's. This may sound crazy, but I think in twenty years we're going to see information replacing electricity, uh, in terms of its large flow around society. I think we're going to see most people getting their energy produced locally and everybody of course is gonna remain on the web and you know all our communications and a lot of our work will be via the internet. So we're gonna have huge server farms next to the power stations and those server farms will send the information via cable and via satellite around the world and we will be powering our our handheld devices and our screens from locally produced energy so that's my forecast for the energy but of course we need much more than just energy for our screens we also need it for our cars and our um, heating and again I think that a lot of that is going to be it's going to be very different from the way it is today it's going to be you know you might drive your car home and then plug your car into your energy system at home and your car will provide your energy and uh, of course, it might not be your car, it might be Google's
4: car. Yeah,
0: yeah, that, that very rent. interesting. Interesting where, um, where this might so
1: go. I think the only thing I can tell you is it's going to be very different.
0: Yeah. Well, we're out of time. We'll leave it there with that intriguing ending. And uh, you can read the book. It's called Off the Grid. Nick Rosen is the author. The website is uh, off-grid.net, and his email is uh, nickrosen at gmail.com. If you want to tweet him, it's at nickrosen2. Nick Rosen, uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Great to talk
0: to you. And uh, keep those questions coming. You can still respond to uh, upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'll pass those on to Nick Rosen and uh, get those on a future program as well. Hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. Very interesting discussion. The book is On Immunity and Inoculation. Eula Biss is uh, the author. On Becoming a New Mother... She addresses a chronic condition of fear, fear of the government, medical establishment, what's in your child's air, food, mattress, medicine, and vaccines. On inoculation, hope you'll join us for tomorrow's program. And uh, for today, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening.
4: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Holly Strand of the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. By late summer, most of Utah's flowering plants have fizzled out for the year. Those that remain are looking pretty spent. But not the sagebrush. It's showtime for over 20 types of sagebrush in the Intermountain West. Like grasses and conifers, sagebrush plants are pollinated by the wind. They have no need for the specialized traits designed to attract live pollinators. Instead, they've evolved other strategies to survive and multiply. For instance, wind-pollinated plants don't need showy, colorful petals to attract insects or birds. The wind is going to do its job anyway, regardless of visual cues. Thus, sagebrush flowers are very small and nondescript. In fact, When passing by flowering sagebrush, you might not even notice that it's in bloom. Look for long spikes with clusters of tiny flower heads. The pale yellow flowers are concealed by petal-like bracts that are the very same color as the rest of the plant. What the flowers of sagebrush lack in beauty, they make up in quantity. A single flowering stem of the most common sagebrush, known simply as big sagebrush, can hold hundreds of flower heads that produce a massive amount of pollen. Most windblown pollen grains won't end up anywhere near the female part of another plant. So to make up for this risky method of fertilization, individual plants must produce greater volumes of pollen. In contrast, plants with live pollinators get door-to-door service during fertilization. Far less pollen is needed to get the same job done. Scent is another way for plants to attract live pollinators. Species pollinated by bees and flies have sweet scents, whereas those pollinated by beetles have strong, musty, spicy, or fruity odors. However, the iconic western scent of the sagebrush has absolutely nothing to do with pollination. Instead, the pungent aroma is a byproduct of certain chemicals produced in the leaves. These chemicals evolved to repel animals and to reduce the odds of being eaten or grazed. The chemicals, Bitter terpenes, camphors, and other secondary compounds peak in early spring. But as the late summer flowering period approaches, the chemicals start to break down. By winter, browsers like deer and elk can nibble on the protein-rich seed heads without getting a nasty aftertaste. Thanks to botanist Leela Schultz for sharing her knowledge of sagebrush. For a link to the online version of Leela's book, Pocket Guide to Sagebrush, go to www.wildaboututah.org. If you'd like a hard copy of this pocket guide, send an email to wildaboututah at gmail.com. We have five copies to give away to listeners from across the state. For Wild About Utah and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at
2: cnr.usu.edu.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.